This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Tuesday Home Time on 3CR. Digital, 3CR, analog 8.55am, streaming and podcast 3cr.org.au. Anytime, any day. I'm Jen Bartlett and I'll be here until 6pm. Today, the focus on the genocide we're witnessing against the people of Gaza and more and more the West Bank. Senior lecturer at RMIT University, Benoit Campmark, and BDS activist Michael Sheikh talking about Albert Systems, their main Israeli war machine, forced out of RMIT University. Associate Professor Jake Lynch is at Sydney University and he'll be talking about the unholy alliance between the Australian media and Australian Jewish news. Professor Jocelyn Che, AM, talking about her recent visit to China. And Dr Sue Wareham, President of MAPW and the targeting of the medical facilities in Gaza and also focusing on Australia's non-action in bringing about a ceasefire. And Bevan Ramston from Independent Peaceful Australia Network with a statement on Palestine and particularly the role or non-role of the Australian government in bringing about a ceasefire. But first, Mr Kevin Healy and he's had another one of his weeks. A week, Jane Lister, when let's go to what we can't joke about. Zion now says it will only bomb and destroy and murder the innocents for 20 hours a day, which with US support calls this humanitarian. 20 hours of slaughter is humanitarian. And that presumes they'll keep their word, given people fleeing to where they were told to flee were bombed anyway. Onwards, it has been um, apparent for years that any criticism of Zion is deemed anti-Semitic. Any criticism of the current slaughter and destruction anti-Semitic, when of course Semites are being slaughtered. Yes, justifiably, people are anti-Zionists because we are anti any philosophy based on race and religious hegemony. Now Zion and the US are discussing who will govern Gaza if they leave anything left to govern, again perpetuating 75 years of ignoring the Palestinian people, who will yet again have no say. The mantra to justify all this, Zion has a right to defend itself, means Zion has a right to all the lands it has taken and continues to expand and take, and those banished from the land stolen from them have no right to resist and the world, including Trubla Wazi, supports that. Finally, as shame rings out regularly at Sunday rallies, shame to the state premier for denouncing pro-Palestinian protesters and Mary Beck Council's anti-Israeli or anti-Zion motion. The ALP federal and state is being shamefully gutless. Now, normal week that was, if normal could ever apply. And can't we be proven wrong? Just when we thought the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs was the repository of the most conservative thinking, indeed, calling it thinking is a major concession, just when it has come out opposing the imprisonment of non-violent criminals, or, more correctly, a particular non-violent criminal. The Institute's criminal justice reform research analyst, Mia Slipped, 
real name, analysed the prison reform offered former Hayseed and Sheepshit Party state poly Russell North who has moved west to enjoy his most gracious majesty's hospitality after being found guilty of ripping off the public purse to the tune of 175 grand. The cost of locking Paul Russell up will cost more than the amount he ripped off, Mia pointed out. It is now taxpayers who will ultimately pay for his crimes, she argued, perhaps forgetting they already have to the tune of 175 grand. Pay, she said, thanks to the wasteful, unproductive and expensive imprisonment of people who pose a minimal physical safety threat to the community. Where has Mia been when prison reform advocates have been pointing to that wasteful, unproductive, expensive argument for years? Surely it's not that a privileged hayseed and sheepshed fraudster is involved. Where have Mia and the Institute of Public Very, Very Private been as countless non-privileged have been slotted at infinitum ever since our mother country deported the poverty-stricken victims of its criminal injustice system in the terra nullius invasion. The, the newly concerned Mia must be relieved, though, that the EY partner, one of the big four global financial behemoths, charged, charged with bringing in 700000 through tax-dodging advice, is unlikely to cost the community by joining Paul Russell. We can but imagine how much tax the public purse missed out on if the fee for evading it was 700 grand. But Mia will also see justice in that EY itself will not be charged with any offence because, after all, the bloke they're charging was only a partner who allegedly gave his tax dodging advice for years. But for all those years, EY had no idea, no idea at all, all this was going on. Because obviously clients of the big four and the big end of town tax lawyers consult them, pay them millions to ensure they pay as much tax as they possibly can. Which is why the government in turn seeks their advice on any proposed amendments to tax laws. Because there's no way they would recommend amendments guaranteeing they can continue to ensure their clients always meet their, quote, legal tax obligations with a report this week that about 30% of good corporate citizens met their legal tax obligations this year by paying not one cent. But although the report is silent on... Um on this, we can assume that if they practice being a good corporate citizen, they would have collected heaps of corporate welfare from the taxes of those who can't avoid paying them. And we're sure Mia and the Institute of Public Very, Very Private team would agree there's one non-violent criminal who should not avoid jail. In fact, he's facing life for the unpatriotic crime of exposing true blue Aussie war crimes. Haven't noticed the Institute of joining the campaign to have the charges dropped, but imagine what it will cost the taxpayer to lock him up for life. Yet the Institute would know that's money well spent. David McBride's whistleblowing, just because his attempt to have the issues addressed through the proper channels were ignored, led to a very expensive Her Most Gracious Majesty's con mission into war crimes. So he's already unnecessarily cost us heaps. OK, the con mission found he was correct. Trubler was he trained killers had committed war crimes. So arising out of all that... Uh, it's important that someone be charged. And who better than the public servant lawyer who exposed the whole thing? 
Yet all these goody-goodies say the government should drop the charges. Come on, he'll face a fair trial before he's put away for life. As Cup Week drew to a close, was anyone prepared to bet that a real war criminal will ever be charged for just doing their job? After all, killing people is their job. Meanwhile, killing mortgagees, metaphorically, another interest rate hike, which for the good of the country will lead to lots more unemployed, whom reserve losses bank supremo Michelle Bulldust knows is for their own good. But those who feel the extra payments might make life uh, a little more difficult stretch the budget wrong. Worst-packed bank supremo Peter King hit the customers, announced that borrowers can cope with rate rises. For instance, if I had a mortgage, I have no doubt I could cope with the rate increases. Peter made borrowers feel so much better. Oh, sure, the big supremos of all our great corporate citizens could cope. Well spotted, Peter. Although if some borrowers do find making ends meet a touch difficult, we may have a solution. Warren Buffett, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world big, big investor, announced he has $241 billion to invest, real figure, making money work, he said. While he makes a fortune doing no work, well, the workers of the companies in which he invests are doing the work and making Warren's fortune, but given Warren is obviously a warm, caring, empathetic, filthy rich of the filthy rich, we recommend those having a bit of trouble with the mortgage... Pop a a note to Warren and ask for a little help from his 241 bill. He'd be glad to offer a helping hand. Oh, and by the way, in declaring borrowers could cope, Peter King hit the customers announced a 26% profit increase to $7.2 billion. And Worstpack and the other struggling banks will certainly be able to cope. They'll make even more money. And the caring business class party shadow minister for capitalism, Jane Hume Dam, the left, said those who couldn't cope, couldn't cope, thanks to the socialist government. Asked why rates were rising and people couldn't cope when her lot was the government, Jane pointed out those problems had nothing to do with the government and were down to international issues. Whereas... The international issues ignorant economists blame for the current problems are not international issues, but simply socialist mismanagement. But then, in a complete surprise, Jane advocated the end of capitalism. Get rid of it. The government is dealing with the symptoms, but not the cause. She couldn't have been clearer. Good on you, Jane. More importantly, big economic guru Jim Chalmers' capital made anyone not coping despite their bank's assurances, feels so much better by declaring yet again he knows people are doing it tough. And he would love to help them, but knows that if he does something to help them, that will make life worse for them. The intricacies of the delicate flower that is the economy. Epitomised in the problems facing Stevedore DP World for Dud the Public, facing industrial action by the evil unions with delays and even goods ending up in the wrong ports, all because the greedy workers want a pay rise when the company is happy to offer them an agreement in which they won't be worse off. What could be fairer? 
And this is where the intricacies of the delicate flower come in. At the same time, Dud the Public World is increasing its charges to its, its customers by 52% to $191 per container, prompting even prominent exponent of the greatest little economic order, Graham Slamuel, to criticise the light-touch regulation of stevedores and even suggests the privatisation of most Trublowasi container ports has created rampant high prices. A very unfair criticism because the still publicly owned Fremantle port charges all of $50, showing private sector efficiency costs a mere 400% extra, a small price to pay for efficiency. And all the more reason why does the public world can't afford the outrageous demands of its greedy, greedy workforce, on top of which now it also faces a cyber attack. Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist bolt through the head informed us big supremo Anthony, all being oozy, hadn't taken his orders from Washington not to believe anything evil China says seriously enough, becoming a naive victim of communist propaganda leading us to wish Bolt Prue would fill us in on which bit of the Chinese economy is, uh, is communist. Anthony landed home from China, wandered across the tarmac and took off to the Pacific Islands Forum, where he said all the island states loved what, what Trublowasi is doing to facilitate their disappearance into the briny. Yet despite that, Germany's envoy on climate change came here and said we, would, we should join the European nations in calling for a total end to fossils at the next COPBAT conference coming up shortly. We do not have the time anymore to go slowly, she said, and did seem a touch concerned that through Blue Aussie still approved new fossils and expanded fossil exports. On behalf of all Trublowazis, let's say what right has she to come here and meddle in matters that are none of her business? For instance, in a takeover bid for great corporate citizen origin fossils, one bidder described it as a fossil fuel cash box. Does she and those Pacific nations, which may be a little sceptical, want to deny those shareholders of their rights? Finally, we can dismiss any criticism from those Pacific Island states because they're not going to be around much longer anyway. Good afternoon. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. Last month, eighty BDS activists associated with students for Palestine, Melbourne, marched on the RMIT University campus denouncing the university for its complicity in the ongoing Israeli atrocities in the Gaza Strip. In response, RMIT University released a statement that it no longer had any partnership with Albert Systems or with Albert Systems Australia. RMIT confirmed that their planned partnership with Albert Systems was terminated and they had had no relationship with the company or any of its subsidiaries. At the weekend, I spoke with Binoy Kampmark, Senior Lecturer at RMIT University. Binoy, a statement was put out by RMIT University and I'd like to read the first couple of paragraphs. The RMIT University community 
has been greatly saddened by the reports of the Israeli-Gaza conflict and its humanitarian impacts. Our thoughts are with those caught up in the violence and across our campuses waiting for news from family and friends. Our immediate priority has been to reach out to staff and students who might be impacted, providing them with support as they need it. With regard to partnerships, RMIT's partnerships and collaborations stem from a deep commitment to innovation in undergraduate education, postgraduate research and employment opportunities and collaborative research projects. RMIT does not design, develop or manufacture weapons or munitions in the university or as part of any partnership. With regards to Albert Systems, RMIT does not have a partnership with Albert Systems or any of its subsidiaries, including Albert Systems of Australia. To your knowledge, Binoy, is that true? Look, I can't verify that, Jan, for the very simple reason that uh, universities are secretive places. And um, what is strange about the statement is that there's not even an admission that they had a partnership to begin with. So it, it's worded in a very curious way, and I think that's worth noting that it, there's no even admission that they had a partnership that was actually lasting for two years. So it was actually signed, I think it was last year, and it featured two projects. At the time it was signed, uh, the idea was that it was meant to focus on, for example, as tends to be the nature of these uh, supposed announcements and contracts, it was meant to focus on the um, notions of evacuation or natural disasters, emergencies, and these sorts of things. Obviously, the announcement is not going to mention the fact that Elvid Systems is involved with surveillance test run against Palestinians in Gaza and so forth, and that Elvid Systems has a very unsavory record that has been noted in numerous countries, not least of it protests in the UK, for example, uh, in Europe um, and in other countries as well. So. The statement from the university doesn't really say much, and I'm afraid to say that I can't really confirm whether that's actually happened, because the statement itself doesn't even admit that RMIT had an arrangement with Albert Systems to begin with. Activists have been targeting RMIT University for weeks now. What about the staff and academics? There have been academics who are, for example, say, a university board and, you know, these kind of agreements are circulated there. There have been a few, for example, who've claimed they've seen documentation in connection with this, but these are not people who are going to come forward. They're not, for example, you know, it's the classic thing, I was chatting in the context with an interview with Declassified Australia the other day on exactly this very same thing, and I did say that if you want to keep things secret, there are a few options. You could park it in the intelligence services, but an even better way is to park it into a university because university academics are the last people to question anything of any principle and worth. They're too interested in the so-called rentier middle-class mentality where they're just terrified about um, their mortgages and their status anxiety. Unfortunately, I will have to say that the protest is not coming from academics. It's not coming from broadly speaking, the intelligentsia within the fraternity. It's certainly not coming from management because they love the cash. It's coming from students and uh, activist groups connected, say, with Palestine and you know, individuals such as, uh, well, you know, when I write about it myself, but also individuals such as Anthony Lewinstein and 
individuals like that. Unfortunately, it's not coming from within the university fraternity itself. What about other companies or organisations connected to the occupation who might have contacts with the university? I'm thinking of Hewlett-Packard and organisations such as that. Yeah, I mean, all of these companies, they always have relationships with universities that seem on the surface to be fairly innocuous, but it's you know, in, in Australia, it's not one of the worst offenders, at least at the moment, in that regard. The, you know, the military university industrial complex uh, is very developed, say, for example, in the United States. But unfortunately, with the advent of AUKUS and the advent of enormous amounts of cash being poured into the tertiary system, tertiary university system, I'll give you an example, the um, Albanese government announced in September 4,000 additional undergraduate places would be funded specifically relevant to AUKUS. So this is a great boon for military companies, manufacturers, technology companies, and so on, that are connected with the war industry. So you know, whether it's a specific company or not, it's almost beside the point that so many potentially involved that are then tied into various laboratories, various schemes. So for example, you know, for your listeners, the Melbourne Information Decision and Autonomous Systems Laboratory, just uh, shorten it to MIDAS, operates, um, you know, in, at uh, Melbourne University, for example, run by individuals such as Professor Chris Manzi. And these individuals are just focused on AI systems, advanced computations, surveillance, you name it. And they are very much part of this particular scheme of militarization across universities um, that we've already touched on the conversation. There was talk that the then Andrews government was interested in doing deals with Albert or having connections with Albert. Do you know if that's true or not? It is true that it wasn't just the case of the university itself of RMIT, and it certainly was also the case that the, um, yeah, the Victorian state government certainly was also interested in partnering up. Uh, these are not the sorts of things, given the nature of what the hope it does and given the sorts of um, material and research, uh, this is not usually something that will just be taken independently, certainly in Australia, independently by university. Uh, we'll have to have some kind of state or some kind of authority justification as well or interest, and certainly that, that's the case. What I found very striking about it is that you see virtually nothing about it from the state government either. There's a very... You know, the, you have to remember that the statement that was released by RMIT came in the aftermath of, of course, the, the, the war, the outbreak of war between Hamas and Israel. And what is really fascinating about it is that it doesn't shed light about, was it in a direct, it, it suggests it was a direct reaction to the conflict. But but then that, that just begs the question, how much research has been done, how much involvement? How far advanced is the drone project? How much has RMIT done in terms of intellectual property connected with the project? These are all questions that are distinctly unanswered and are been left unanswered because efforts to get this sort of stuff are virtually impossible. You know, if you if you lodge an FOI application, a freedom of information application to find these things, you virtually well, you get virtually nothing. You know, it, it's not blanked out, then it's rejected. It's always commercial and confidence and so on. These are the kind of excuses that are used. Well, looking at the wider context of the attempted genocide in Gaza, this is a question I've asked a number of people. It seems to me hard to believe that what happened on the 7th of October, the Israel 
government didn't know it was going to happen, considering the scope of the bombardment and now the invasion, that that wasn't planned in some way. Just to, to add a bit of nuance to this, a lot of historical events happen on the basis of incompetence and lack of awareness and so on. I think, I, I think there's very little to suggest that the Israeli authorities, you know, say, for example, were somehow complicit or purposely allowing an attack to happen across the, the border to, to create the pretext of it. I know there's the false flag argument and so on, but I would have to say that just as with Yom Kippur, you know, in 1973, there was uh, a napping complex that afflicts the powerful. And the Israeli order has been essentially to put the Palestinian cause to bed. They don't want to deal with it. They didn't want to deal with it. The attacks were enormously, well, they were premised essentially on returning the conversation back to the Palestinian plight. And uh, whatever people want to say about Hamas and how it's constituted and so on, the reality is that it did return the discussion to that. Um, the Israeli services have been under this idea that they can suffocate and control and limit, for example, activity happening from Gaza, uh, keeping it as some kind of open-air prison. But the reality of it is that they were smug in their intelligence services. They were smug across the board. But it is worth noting, however, that Hamas has been seen as a very useful tool and ploy in Israeli policy. In fact, WikiLeaks published a cable, you know, and this is again in the context of Cablegate, but there's a very useful cable from uh, the U.S. ambassador uh, to Israel that does reflect on the strategic worth or the involvement of uh, Hamas and how Israel would see Hamas as a useful entity to treat Gaza as a hostile enclave, as it were, for the pretext of attacking it in future. So there's certainly a lot of, to be said in that regard, and, and it's a lot to be said as well of Israel trying to divide Hamas and the PL, the Palestinian authorities, of course, in West Bank, and trying to sort of essentially delegitimize the Palestinian cause. Another issue is that the present war in Gaza is not the first time the dishes of Pine Gap have assisted Israel's military with intelligence, including the the detection of incoming missiles, and that Israel has access to the Five Eyes global surveillance network. Yes, uh, the answer in, in terms of that, well, primarily because of its relationship with the United States. It has a very close intelligence working relationship there. And Pine Gap essentially is a, a U.S. facility. I know it's described as a joint facility, but this is just basic nonsense. It does have Australian personnel working on it, but purely and utterly subordinate to uh, Washington's direction. And Pine Gap, and we, we know this from previous issues from protesters and from you know attempts made to decode or identify what exactly Pine Gap is being used for. And we know for the facts that it's used for targeting drone strikes, for targeting, for example, strikes in Waziristan, for operations in Africa, um, operations of the US drone fleet, um, again, the same issue have been, you know, Australian territory being used for foreign wars, and there's no question, no, no questions asked in Parliament, rarely. I mean, the occasional one is, and it takes, uh, for example, the pilgrims to protest and try to break into Pine Gap to draw attention to it. But the same thing here in the context of missile targeting, as you mentioned, the Gaza conflict, we, we see the same problem constantly, that Australian real estate is being used by the United States to advance its own broader political agenda, and Australian citizens have not a single sliver of say in it. 
it has been revealed also that Australia has approved 322 defence exports to Israel over the past six years, including 49 permits for Israel exports last year and 23 in the first three months of this year. There has been a demonstration at the port in Melbourne and a planned one for Sydney at the weekend with an Israeli ship due to... Yes, well, you're right. What what has been interesting, actually, is um, certainly in the last few years, it's been ongoing, actually, to be fair, uh, the relationship between the Australian government and the Israeli government about ties and certainly with from a military aspect of it. And certainly under Morrison, you have to remember that it was under the Morrison government that um, the shift of focus, there was a wish that the Australian government would open an embassy ultimately in West Jerusalem and acknowledge essentially the uh, uh, the holy city as Israel's capital, which is of course not something that most states have done. They still acknowledge the UN acceptance that the war in 1967 with the boundaries there do not legitimately make Jerusalem the capital of Israel. But the Australian government, certainly under Morrison, certainly under the you know, the coalition, but also it has to be said, you know, Labour has also sported some close ties as well with uh, the Israeli government. So this is all part of the same relationship and this uh, this this deep conflicted notion about how they uh, deal with the Palestinian problems and whatnot. So that's, that's an ongoing debate. That's certainly something the ALP have been jostling with for some time. And they're vulnerable, of course, and susceptible to criticism sometimes because the coalition will always say that whenever anything is raised in the context of protest against Israel, it's deemed anti-Semitic or deemed uh, pro-genocidal and whatever nonsense that tends to thrown in. But that's unfortunately part of that. Well, Australia is, is on the nose for not voting for the UN resolution a couple of weeks ago. Now we have countries like South Africa and others recalling their diplomats. How important is that? Well, it's certainly a statement of the international feeling that things are going terribly, you know, just disappallingly in, in terms of this conflict in Gaza. The Israelis certainly were hoping for some goodwill initially with the attacks on October 7th uh, that resulted in the deaths of 1,400 um, Israeli citizens. But it has to also be noted that the division of these resolutions, especially the General um, Assembly resolution, for example, condemning the violence uh, that's taking place. What's interesting is the abstentions. You mentioned Australia abstaining. It's also interesting to see that various countries, for example, in the in the Pacific actually did vote against the resolution. It reveals that Israeli influence and US influence through that is stronger perhaps than one realizes in the in the vicinity of the Pacific. Uh, so you've got countries such as South Africa and you've got countries very openly taking a stance against that. But then you also have countries that are taking a stance that favor Israel more. They are certainly reluctant, like Australia, to accept resolutions that do not overtly or expressly condemn Hamas and condemn the Palestinian attacks. And I think that's really the fundamental thing. So rather than seeing it as a generic kind of, well, let's try to stop, let's have a ceasefire, because this is absurdly destructive and uh, genocidal. It's a case of, well, if you don't condemn Hamas, then the resolution will not pass. So there's a lot of these mechanics working in in international diplomacy that's coming through. 
when they talk of what's going to happen to Gaza when this is over, I've read one story where the Israelis were planning to get rid of all the people out of Gaza, set up what could be tent cities in the Sinai Desert and re-educate the Palestinians. But where does that leave the Palestinians? You, you can't take up to two million people and dump them in the desert, even if Egypt agreed with it. Well, firstly, Egypt won't agree with it. That's, that's the first thing. And the second thing, too, is that the particular proposal you mentioned actually does come from an Israeli newspaper that mentions a briefing uh, from the, uh, and the intelligence ministry. The intelligence ministry is uh, not as strong and not as influential, perhaps, as people realize in the context of advising government. Uh, the Israeli intelligence minister was the one who circulated this memorandum that suggests a three-stage process of which you mentioned tents and you essentially uh, expulsion, re-education and so on. But it's, as you say, the, the feasibility of it, certainly in this context, would be very hard to envisage. But um, the fact of the matter is history is filled with uh, population displacements enacted by states against individuals. The Turks with the Armenians in 1915, the, let's face it, the you know, um, Nazi Germany against the Jews themselves, and then afterwards, of course, in the aftermath of the Second World War, the forced removal of Germans from Central European territories in vengeance for the German waging of war. Millions of Germans moved from the Czechoslovakia, millions of Germans moved from Yugoslavia. All of these individuals uh, part of the huge relocation of populace. So sadly, as, as much as I would see as, yes, it doesn't seem feasible, the very sad thing is that it will depend on a lot of how international opinion deals in response to this. I certainly would um, see it as very hard for Israel to engineer this. They have to ultimately accept the reality that the Palestinians are there to stay. And this is perhaps the hardest reality of all, uh, that this war is simply just another footnote in an ongoing conflict that only uh, can only see a political resolution. And until the parties accept that and until... Israel does, this notion of demilitarizing Gaza and removing Hamas, uh, it doesn't deal with the problem. And it doesn't deal with the fact that these individuals are, need to be dealt with in terms of their rights and the rights of return and the uh, Palestinian, more broadly speaking, Palestinian autonomy. And that's something that has not been addressed. And there are great concerns that while the focus of the world is on Gaza, that the settlers and the IDF in the West Bank are bit out of the control, I would say. Well, yes, I would say they're even more out of, than out of control. They, they are reported and have been, um, even in mainstream um, outlets, there have been reports of killings and assaults by Jewish settlers in West Bank. And that policy in itself is uh, continuing unabated. And in fact, uh, various politicians in the Knesset have openly advocated the essentially the population populating West Bank with Jewish settlers in order to essentially expel Palestinians. So the expulsion is taking place gradually, but it's taking place. The removal of Palestinians from uh, the West Bank, the gun is not exactly being put against um, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, but it's being done gradually. You know, and now as a result of that, um, the IDF essentially is just looking on. They don't, they don't tend to intervene. Police uh, take up investigations as to instances of violence from Jewish settlers, but these are almost hardly ever resolved uh, in favor of the families who suffer 
lost as a result of the, you know, the zealous activities of these settlers. So the reality of it there is that, you know, West Bank, you can see West Bank being the next uh, hotspot. It's already a hotspot. You know, and Palestinians have been killed there. There is uh, resistance taking place and uh, there is the very heavily armed Jewish settler militia that operates there too. So we shouldn't be surprised that uh, there'll be another outbreak in a more concerted way happening in the near future. But in the meantime, we can't imagine the anguish and the pain of the Gazans trapped in that enclave by Israel. It is horrendous because we're seeing essentially the extermination of a population in real time. And this is the astonishing thing. You know, you can see live footage. You can actually see the bombing taking place. It's, it's, it's absolutely astonishing. It's quite, it's horrifying actually in all sorts of ways. And this kind of complicity and this connivance of certain states in Australia not being really much of an exception. It's just that they're not as, as noisily partaking in it as, say, for example, you know, the United States. But uh, it is extraordinary to see this thing happening in real time and how utterly casual the particular accounts of the next destroyed family, the next, um, you know, the death of the next 20 family members and so on is being treated. It, it, it is remarkable. The, the Israeli PR exercise on this has been quite extensive and uh, they've made sure that they've incorporated, for example, journalists from, you know, Western sources and bring them together to see, well, this is what we're doing. This is the aim. This is the object. We abide by international law. All Palestinian casualties are sad, we regret them, but it's all collateral damage. And this is the sanitizing language that they've been trying to use about this. All the while, of course, demonizing the Palestinian cause and Hamas in general, just to make sure that their retaliatory measures are seen as justified. But that's not getting through, is it, to the, the populace in all the countries around the world who are out in the streets now in their hundreds of thousands? Yeah, well, well I, I think the, the reality is that the protests, as you say, are taking place. There'll be more and they'll just keep increasing in number. Um, the rage will increase as well. And of course, the, the broader problem here uh, that Israel has to settle with and also other countries who are allies of Israel is where does it do with radicalizing international Islamic activity? Well, there's, there's already suggestions that, for example, the Gaza conflict is being used as a boon for recruitment in India, for, you know, by virtue of that, India has a huge Muslim minority population, and they can then use this uh, activists as, a, as uh, in some cases, people would say a justifiable pretext to confront Modi's uh, Hindu nationalist, uh, you know, the so-called Hindutva state. That's just one example. Across the globe, this is the sort of activity that will radicalize even further individuals, also in Western societies. And sadly, the reality of some kind of what the CIA would like to call blowback is a real prospect. It doesn't stop in Gaza. It won't stop in Gaza. It's going to be a, a broader international issue, which is deeply and hugely disturbing. Thank you once again, Benoit. Pleasure, Jan. Anytime. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. 
Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Community Radio, giving voice to the community since 1976. We heard there from Senior Lecturer at RMIT, Binoy Campmark, about the campaign to get Albert out of that university. Michael Shake today is representing BDS, Boycott, Divestment and Sanction, which initiated the now successful campaign. Michael, when did BDS first learn about Albert at RMIT? We've been calling for a boycott of Albert and the breaking of the RMIT relationship for over a year because, uh, you know, we're part of a global movement to boycott Israeli institutions and companies that profit from the occupation. And Albert is Israel's leading arms company we gave a lot of support to the campaign. What's been happening to the campaign to get rid of Albert? Because it started a year ago. You've now got Mm -hmm. a victory. How did the campaign run over that long period? It actually started in 2022 with a call by Palestinian academics on RMIT to cut ties with Albert. It listed all of the crimes that Albert was involved in against the Palestinian people asked RMIT not to be a part of that campaign. When RMIT refused to reply to the letter and just sent out a press release saying how they were peaceful, even though they were involved with an arms company that was involved in all these atrocious human rights abuses, that's when the campaign took off. Mark Bradbeer and Shane McCartan started picketing, handing out information to students and staff It was slow work, but gradually they raised awareness. Then in July, Free Palestine Melbourne and the Australian Jewish Democratic Society organised a forum at RMIT and among the speakers was Anthony Lowenstein. In his book, The Palestine Laboratory, he outlined how Elbert Systems is involved not only in war crimes against the Palestinians, but in human rights abuses around the world, particularly on the US-Mexico border, where it's got a mass surveillance system that systematically harasses Native Americans and immigrants. He was quite forthright in his denunciation of RMIT's complicity in these human rights abuses and called upon people to step up pressure on RMIT to break its ties with Elbert. Since then, the campaign has been gradually picking up momentum. But of course, the turning point was Israel's campaign of mass murder in the Gaza Strip, which really brought a lot of people, particularly university students, out onto the street, joining the pickets against Elbert and denouncing them for their complicity in war crimes. Let's hear more about BDS. Boycott sanctions, divestments. 
when did it begin and what sort of success have you had here in Australia first, but also worldwide? In 2004, the International Court of Justice ruled that Israel's apartheid wall that it was building through the West Bank was illegal and the settlements were illegal under international law. That was a landmark ruling that was unfortunately ignored by the international community. So a, a year later, all of these Palestinian unions, student organizations, feminist groups, and other civil society organizations got together and they put out a call for the boycott, divestment, and sanctions of Israeli companies and institutions and international companies and institutions that were complicit and profiting off the occupation of Palestine and the illegal settlement enterprise. That was in 2005. They were modeled on the anti-apartheid uh, boycotts of the 20th century against South Africa. That They became a global movement. BDS Australia is an affiliate of the BDS movement. Uh, we've had a few successes. The biggest success to date was getting a whole lot of artists, dancers, musicians and the like, to boycott the Sydney Festival at the beginning of last year. Um, a whole lot of um, Aboriginal, Indian, uh, Middle Eastern people who were participating in the, the festival withdrew because it was accepting money from the Israeli embassy. And they said this was totally inappropriate and the solidarity of the Palestinians, they were going to pull out too. And eventually the campaign gathered enough momentum despite attacks from the Israel lobby that other artists, Anglo artists and uh, other Australians, began to pull out. And as a result, um, the Sydney Festival said they would not accept funding from any embassy um, for future events. And that was a big uh, landmark BDS campaign in Australia. We consider this another landmark. RMIT has repudiated its relationship with Elbit, and other universities have also been put on notice that if they go into relationships with companies that are profiting from or associated with Israel's regime of apartheid in Palestine, they will also be targeted. Do you have any in your sights at the moment? Not right now. There's a lot of companies that are involved in the oppression of the Palestinians or, or have relationships with um, the Israeli authorities. But we, we try to go after one at a time, uh, systematically, uh, like Elbert. Elbert was a very easy target because it's not only profiting from the occupation, but it's selling arms to some of the most hideous human rights abusers in the world. So, so that's why, why, why we picked it. But there's a lot of other companies. Hewlett Packard is one that we've been targeting for a long time because they're um, very complicit in Israel's, in the maintenance of Israel's regime of apartheid, particularly throughout the West Bank. And Puma as well have relationships with Israeli um, sports teams, um, despite the fact that the Israeli government is systematically cracking down and making life impossible for Palestinian athletes throughout the whole of Palestine. Have you, here in Australia or overseas, had a go at Caterpillar? Not in Australia, no, but in the United States, there has been a very big campaign against Caterpillar, not only because it's destroyed thousands of Palestinian houses. You know, these are 
American bulldozers that are specifically armored up and made to destroy houses and then exported to Israel, civilian houses, which is a war crime and which the State Department recognizes a war crime, but are provided to Israel anyway. They also were involved in the murder of the American peace activist, Rachel Corrie, who was run over deliberately by a caterpillar bulldozer when she was trying to prevent the demolition of a Palestinian doctor's house in the Gaza Strip. That, that's been a big campaign in the United States. Uh, we haven't done that in Australia yet, but it's a possibility for the future. Does British Aerospace operate here in Australia? Yes, it does. And it's got research contracts with Australian universities as well. Are the universities being targeted in recent years? Is that to get their foot in the door? All Australian universities have been savaged by the coalition government over the last 10 years or so. They've had their funding cut. During the COVID crisis, they were the only sector that didn't receive uh, subsidies, such as JobKeeper. So when a um, rich Israeli company, international company, says, here's a lot of money, why don't we work together on developing cutting-edge drone or artificial intelligence technology, it's a very difficult offer to refuse, especially if the Victorian government and the federal government are backing such partnerships. So, yes, they do target Australian companies. They know that they're vulnerable. They're trying to maintain their reputation as centres of excellence, and they come along with a big pot of money. But, um, you know, there is a moral cost involved with that, and we want people to know that not an innocent partnership when Australian universities um, partner themselves with these Israeli arms companies. You've mentioned the fact of the former federal government, but you've got to acknowledge that the present government, the ALP, plus the ALP in Victoria, are also supporting these companies. That is true. Probably not as terrible as a coalition, but they um, have been fulsome in their support of these partnerships. But then you have the Australian government selling weapons to Israel. Indeed. And purchasing weapons from Israel as well and trying to deepen its relationships. Support for Israel in Australia is deep, historic and bipartisan. Now, the coalition is worse in every respect than the Labour Party, but that shouldn't exonerate the Labour Party in any way, especially given the um, recent atrocities that are happening in the Gaza Strip and the Albanese government's refusal even to call for a ceasefire to end the suffering. Not for peace, not for dismantling of the apartheid regime, not the end, the end of settlement construction, just for a ceasefire to stop the slaughter of more than 320 Palestinians every day for the last five weeks. You've spoken about the import and export of weapons to Israel. The company also, and you're someone's site at the moment, is the shipping company Zim. And there was a demonstration late last week in Melbourne and yes. one in Sydney. Can you talk about that company? Zim is one of Israel's national carriers. It's the largest 
it was targeted by a group called Unions for Palestine because of this, because they want to be part of the boycott movement too. We can't keep doing business as usual while Israeli politicians are calling for the extermination of Palestinians and the Israeli army is bombing ambulances, cutting the Gaza Strip off from fuels, targeting hospitals, turning the whole of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank for that matter into this hellscape, um, this apartheid health, uh, you know, to defend this regime of apartheid. So it's really good that the unions stepped up in that picket. I was actually there at the time. It started off with speeches and then a group of people spontaneously blocked a Zim truck from entering the port. The rally went from there. Um, it was peaceful at all times, but it was a very successful campaign. Having worked on this uh, campaign for a long time, it's quite gratifying, even amidst a horror, to see so many different groups, unions, university students, you know, LGBT organizations and environmental groups step up and say, what can we do to help? I think now environmentalists, feminists, LGBT people, anti-war people all understand that Palestine is not just a, a Palestinian issue, it's their issue too. Palestine's an environmentalist issue, it's a feminist issue, it's a social justice issue, it's an anti-racist issue, it's all of these things. And that is why our rallies keep growing and all of these groups are stepping up and saying, what can we do to help? And they never talk about Hamas atrocities. They ne never complain about that. They understand that this war did not start on October 7th this year. It started 100 years ago when Britain took over Palestine and began colonizing it with Jewish people from Europe to create a, a, um, a, a Zionist state in an Arab country. And, and people get that now. And they're horrified by what's happening in the Gaza Strip, but they're also horrified at Australia's complicity in that, and they want to do their bit. So it is quite gratifying to um, see such support and to be able to claim a victory regarding RMIT. Well, let's look at BDS finally, Michael. How do people get a list of the companies and organisations that should be targeted? Okay, go to the um, list of uh, the website of BDS Australia. On the homepage, you will see a list of a whole lot of companies that are complicit, the most complicit companies. You'll see Domino's Pizza, McDonald's, Burger King, Pizza Hut, Puma, HP, Hewlett-Packard, SodaStream, there's a whole lot of them. Hewlett-Packard and Puma are, are big targets right now. You know, we've got lots of resources on the website that you can share with your friends and people who want to know more about these companies and why should you boycott them and how to be more systematic in this campaign. And of course, people aren't going to go without or with anything by boycotting these companies. There's plenty of alternatives to these companies in, our, in the society. I agree. There's a lot better burgers you can get than McDonald's around. Uh, so I don't think you'd be depriving yourself and certainly a lot better pizza chains than um, Domino's. People don't know, they won't do anything, but if people know that these companies are, are complicit in underwriting an apartheid regime in Palestine, 
and at least they've got the option of doing something. And continue to go on the streets and protest at the same time. I don't know if you've been to any of the protests recently, but, I mean, they've been the biggest by far since the beginning of the Iraq war. Now, you wouldn't get that from watching the ABC, understand that from watching the ABC, but they're growing every Sunday. Every Sunday at 12 o'clock, there's a mass rally outside the State Library. Uh, I was asked by the police earlier this week, how long will they go on for? I, I said, until this, this bombing ends. They get bigger every time. Um, more and more people are not only aware of what's going on, they feel that they have to do something. You know, we had more than 50,000 last weekend. That, that was a long weekend, so I expect it will be even more this time. People are not only coming, they come once and then they bring their friends and family along. As is the death toll mounts, I think more and more people are going to come out into the streets. So, that is a, a hopeful sign. I'm not saying the Albanese government will change its policies immediately as a result of this. I'm not saying that we can force Israel to stop the bombing of Gaza tomorrow, but it's very important as part of a longer-term campaign to build an anti-apartheid movement in Melbourne and throughout Australia. Absolutely. Thank you, Michael. You're welcome. I've been speaking with Michael Sheikh who's a member of BDS, Boycott, Divestment and Sanction. The following is a report from the 1st of November. The Director of the New York Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has left his post protesting that the UN is failing in its duty to prevent what he categorises as genocide of Palestinian civilians in Gaza under Israeli bombardment and citing the US, the UK, and most of Europe, as wholly complicit in the horrific assault. He wrote on 28th of October to the UN High Commissioner in Geneva, saying, this will be my last communications to you in my role in New York. Also complicit in what has been named, quote, as an unholy alliance in defending Israeli slaughter of Palestinian civilians, Unquote. These are the words of Jake Lynch, Associate Professor at the University of Sydney. Who are you including in this unholy alliance defending the Israeli slaughter of Palestinian civilians? I just think it's, it's a kind of reactivation of um, a fairly normal pattern that the classic account of um, influences on news content by Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman. The propaganda model is very much borne out here. That what you've got is a consensus among the leaders of Australian political parties that extends almost complete impunity to Israel. And the, the Murdoch press in particular uh, is inclined to pick up on that. And in that, it's, uh, it really is, either consciously or not, echoed by and echoing the Australian Jewish news. And that's a uh, a concern that the, the readers of those newspapers are really in what's called a media filter bubble, although they never really hear any heterodox perspectives. To your knowledge, is mass media the same or similar in other Western countries? Well, certainly in the UK, uh, the Murdoch media is generally to be found dwelling on what it conceives as wedge issues 
to try to split off or demoralise support for national importance. And so they include the familiar panoply of um, immigration, asylum-seeking, soft on crime, etc. And in that, they, they really position themselves as an accomplice to power. It's therefore an obstacle to reform, certainly in the case of the UK with um, the leadership of Labour by Jeremy Corbyn. That's the last time Labour were really proposing any serious reforms. The accusation of anti-Semitism was weaponized against Jeremy Corbyn with no basis. In fact, it was an infamous scam. But uh, the Murdoch press were definitely uh, playing a, a very um, vanguardist role in that campaign. And it did link up with other factions of the British establishment, unfortunately, to bring down Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. And now he's been replaced by Keir Starmer, who is completely on board with the uh, apologism for Israel's war crimes in Gaza. And what methods do they use to demonise or threaten journalists? Well, there's been an interesting example recently where the ABC reporter Tom Joyner, who is generally at their Istanbul bureau, uh, was covering the early stages of this war. The Australian picked up on a message he'd exchanged in a WhatsApp group um, about some of the wilder claims that were made about the Hamas raid on October the 7th, in particular, the claim that they had decapitated 40 babies. And in this WhatsApp group, which was really only two other journalists, uh, Tom Joyner described that claim as bullshit. And of course, the Australian, through its media correspondent, Sophie Ellsworth, seized on this apparent gaffe and uh, publicised it. It was never intended for any wider circulation than this WhatsApp group and used it as a, a source of embarrassment to the ABC to get Tom Joyner taken off the story. And indeed, he was, he was sent back to the Istanbul Bureau. But we should note in passing that the story indeed was bullshit. So he was being penalised for being correct about it. He might not quite have used that language on air, but nonetheless, he got it right. And media, including the Australian, which gave it any uh, uncritical play or airtime, uh, were misleading their audiences. So the boot was very much on the wrong foot there. And The Guardian and SBS, how do they fare? Well, certainly The Guardian's reporter has been uh, playing a prominent role in trying to challenge the Israelis on well-attested allegations of war crimes. Uh, it's very difficult to square the facts as they unfold of Israel's assault on Gaza with the provisions of international humanitarian law. Now, the uh, Israeli ambassador who appeared at the National Press Club just engaged in the familiar denialism. And of course, what that does is, is that it retains contestability. In other words, war crimes cannot be reported as accomplished facts. Uh, they must instead be treated as claims in remitted into the kind of on the one hand, on the other hand, in the end, only time will tell kind of pattern, which inevitably drains them of uh, some of their their force and content. It was exactly the same uh, last year when the CNN reporter um, Shireen Abu Akleh was killed. And it was obvious that it was from an Israeli sniper's bullet, but Israel denied it while it was a story that was being prominently reported and therefore obliging journalists who follow the rules to keep on with the kind of claim and counterclaim kind of uh, uh, pattern of, of reporting. And only later uh, did the UN conclude that, yes, it must indeed have been a deliberate assassination by an Israeli sniper. And, of course, findings by the UN are reported, but by that time the heat has died off, so the mission has been accomplished with regard to, to throwing grit in the face of global audiences.
They don't like journalists or others bringing up what happened in Gaza, in Palestine, prior to October the 7th, the past 100 years. Yeah, it's all about backgrounds and contexts. Look, I mean, the preamble to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights actually says that human rights must be protected by law, lest man, and forgive the dated gendered reference, but we can say lest human beings are forced to have recourse as a last resort to armed rebellion in the face of tyranny and oppression. Now, a 16-year illegal collective punishment blockade on Gaza and a regime which all competent authorities agree is one of apartheid is the dictionary definition of tyranny and oppression. Now, what are human rights in this context? Well, any international formulation of human rights begins with the phrase, all peoples have the right to self-determination. And of course, the Palestinians have seen all diplomatic, political and legal rights, uh, legal uh, pathways, I should say, to the realization of that right, systematically closed off with the collusion of actors in the international community, such as Australia. So the Hamas raid on October the 7th is the inevitable consequence of that situation, foreseen in as many words as long ago as 1948 in the preamble to the commercially produced newspaper, the Australian Jewish News. However, uh, we now do have a thriving and flourishing independent media sector. Uh, so we have pearls and irritations as one example, which has rapidly attained quite a wide reach and, and um, significant daily circulation. And that does field uh, a great many extremely well-informed heterodox perspectives, including from members of the Australian Jewish community, including on events in Palestine. Concentrates mainly on Australia's relations with our region and in particular China. And that's significant because really the one should be seen as a subset of the other. You know, the relationships have never been better encapsulated than in the phrase from Caspar Weinberger when he was U.S. Secretary of Defense under President Ronald Reagan. Israel is America's unsinkable battleship in the Middle East. And the role of the Biden administration in the present conflict in Gaza is conceived as part of the neoconservative plan uh, for a new American century to extend U.S. dominance over this century directly across the aspirations of millions of people from Beijing to Beijing, we might say. Uh, and in that sense, it's, it's closely related to the maneuverings in our quadrant of the globe which are inscribed in the AUKUS submarine pact, for example. It's a very clear plot to precipitate an attempt to win a war with China to reiterate American dominance over the Eastern Pacific. And it's extremely dangerous and counterproductive to Australia. That is the main theme of independent media, such as Pearls and Irritations. And the links to the events in Gaza are being spelt out there by a wide range of expert witnesses to good effect. So now we do have a more heterodox and more variegated media landscape than we've perhaps had before. Do you follow social media to get a feel of what's put up there? There's a lot on social media. Of course, it's easy to be overwhelmed, but uh, one, one can still look out for those uh, basic principles, that if you see a formulation of this conflict in, in dyadic terms, then you should proceed with caution. Uh, because, of course, um, you know, it's very easy to be shoved into the kind of black versus white, good versus bad kind of formulation. What we should instead be doing is attending to these issues of background and context 
in search of both causes of and potential exits from uh, the conflict, exits from the, the violence in a very broad range of different settings, different contexts. In particular, what has been the perennial missing element, um, including in phases where uh, peace talks have been on the agenda between Israel and the Palestinians, has been any firm boundary or hindrance on Israel's own behavior. So, for example, the International Criminal Court um, has been investigating now for some years. There was no reason, and there is no reason, why the ICC shouldn't have ruled straight away that the entire Jewish settlement building program in the West Bank is illegal and a war crime because there's one unambiguous line in the Fourth Geneva Convention, the occupying power must not move any part of its population into the territory it occupies. By contrast, this year, 2023, will have been a record year for settlement building in the West Bank. Now, no one's going to make a new story out of bricklayers laying bricks or scaffolding teams putting up scaffolding to build houses, but that is nonetheless consequential. Uh, and it's an essential context in which journalists should seek to reflect the underlying processes that are going on in the conflict that are leading up to the observable events. And only when we can apprise ourselves of those aspects can we be satisfied we've got a fuller picture, whether we access it through social media or, as I would recommend, independent media such as Pearls and Irritations. I must mention public radio, particularly 3CR, almost continuously since our exception in 1976, we have featured Palestinian voices and Palestinian-owned programs. Yep, and um, again, it's it's a, a really uh, a very good example of the um, the account of influences on news content in the propaganda model put forward by Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman. But 3CR um, is not influenced by the interests of owners and advertisers because it's a public uh, station and it doesn't have any advertisers, which is great. Uh, but it's not exempt from, from flack. And this is what uh, the designers lobby specializes in, uh, both exerted um, up front in, in overt criticisms and working behind the scenes. You know, the Australian Jewish News ran a piece by uh, a lobbyist from IJAC, the Australia, Israel and Jewish Affairs Council, where the piece was, was boasting about the influence that had been brought to bear behind the scenes on SBS Arabic News. And, of course, one of the non-executive directors of SBS now is Vic Aladef, a former editor of the Australian Jewish News. So we can guess through what channels that influence was exerted behind the scenes. And that's also a form of flat. It doesn't just have to say that the, the, the form of uh, uh, kind of vituperative criticism above the line. It can also be exerted behind the scenes. And perhaps that's more insidious. What do you know of the Zionist lobby in the US and how that influences the media? The role of the Zionist lobby in the United States is um, is founded on a myth, and I, and I don't mean that in the uh, the sense of being um, false or unfounded. It's, it's, it's of mythical status. Where the UN um, in 1947, as it had been newly formed after World War II, was due to consider the partition of Palestine. And it looked as though the vote was going to go against the partition of Palestine, that the leaders of the pro-Israel lobby in the United States approached the Truman administration, which was then facing midterm elections. And they said, look, everyone knows most American Jews vote, vote Democrats, but we will withhold our votes and may even give them to the Republicans at these midterm elections 
stop by rendering you, President Truman, a lame duck for the remainder of your term, unless you use your position as the host of the United Nations and the most powerful member state in it to ensure the passage of this partition plan. So the vote was postponed. The Philippines ambassador, who had declared himself an opponent of the plan, was sent home and replaced by somebody who would vote for it. France was blackmailed with the possible uh, withholding of payments under the Marshall Plan uh, at a time in its history when it was a nation completely gutted and ruined by war, uh, of course. So all sorts of means were used to ensure the passage of that partition plan in the first place. And that then hardened into a founding myth of the action of the Zionist lobby in U.S. politics. So if, uh, I mean, even now, for example, a recent poll shows that of all registered Democrats in the United States, the number who approve of Israel's military action in the Gaza Strip is 33%. Those who disapprove of it is 49%. So far, a far larger proportion of Democrats disapprove of it than approve of it. Uh, but even so, that myth still persists. Uh, and, and that's uh, still a kind of um, a, a major hindrance on the operation of uh, politics on the centre-left in the United States. And that is, of course, therefore reflected in the media uh, that um, uh, correspond with that section of political opinion. So you're talking about the New York Times, MSNBC, etc. I mean, it must be said that the New York Times, for example, a very interesting piece of journalism after uh, Israel's attack on the Gaza Strip back in 2021, uh, they uh, used video evidence to mount their own investigation and prove that the buildings that were struck by Israeli bombs on that occasion could not possibly have had any conceivable purpose except civilian. So there are still um, oppositional and, shall we say, uh, duty-driven instincts to investigative reporting, even when that refutes the Israeli line. Uh, but there is that kind of uh, uh, and hindrance on um, both political and media representations in the United States, which stems from that original mythical event back in the 1940s. Finally, what can be done to stop the ethnic cleansing now underway in Gaza? How do you counter it? Uh, about a week in um, after the um, original Hamas raid, that's when Anthony Blinken started talking about the restraints that Israel needed to observe. And his phrase was that democracies have higher obligations. I think that's uh, partly because the Americans had received strong signals from a number of players they needed to keep on side, the Egyptians, the Saudis, the Indians, for example, uh, that life would become very difficult if it was seen that Israel were just going ahead with um, you know, blatant war crimes. They are going ahead with blatant war crimes, but maybe there is a little bit um, of restraint that's attributable to that. That was then uh, echoed in the way these things are by other leaders. That uh, uh, was on a Friday, so then the following Monday, Anthony Albanese in the Australian Parliament starts talking about protecting civilian lives and the laws of war. And that was echoed by other leaders after that first phase when Israel appeared to have carte blanche. That is, in turn, I think, largely attributable to the groundswell of public protest there has been around the world. And you saw that in the UN vote last week when the motion was put in the General Assembly for a ceasefire. Um, the number of countries that actually voted against it 
that is to say, with Washington and the Israelis, was down to 12. So Australia abstained. Australia shouldn't have abstained. It should have voted for it. But, you know, even the even the deranged Rishi Sunak regime in Britain uh, only abstained instead of opposing it outright. A number of European Union countries backed it. Uh, and, and that was quite an indicator of the uh, dwindling global diplomatic support for Israel, which can only have dwindled still further in the period since. But that's because governments are having to witness and respond to the groundswell of public protest that it's been. So we need to keep that up. Uh, we need to seek out routes into the political opportunity structure. So I should be going to Anthony Albanese's office this afternoon where there's a rally and starting to circulate my proposal for a left vote strike. You know, I mean, th- these incidents don't embarrass parties of the right. The coalition parties here in Australia are not in the least bit embarrassed about this because they wear their sociopathy on their sleeve. Everyone knows what they represent. The social democratic parties of the world are supposed to represent something different. And they need to come to a fork in the road when there is such an instance as this. And the road that's marked support, uncritical support for Israel, needs to have a sign nailed firmly to the bottom of it. Do not go down this road because you will lose. So we need to enforce this now. You know, we need the Albanese Labour government to be aware that it's in serious danger of losing the next election because it's taken the attitude it has to Israel and Palestine over this particular this particular episode. Uh, and that really has to be the change away from that mythical event in the Democratic Party support in the United States back in the 1940s. That's what has to be switched fundamentally, and it's in our hands to do so. I've been speaking with Jake Lynch, who is an Associate Professor at the University of Sydney. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza, who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege, are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Professor Jocelyn Che, AM, is an adjunct professor at the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology in Sydney. Jocelyn, you have recently returned from a visit to China. You did express some reservations prior to the trip, but they've proved unfounded, and we'll hear about that a bit later. But the reason for your visit centres around the Australia Studies Centre in China. There are currently, I believe, about 40. What happens at one of those, and when were they first established? 
there are around 40. I can't give you the very accurate number because, you know, universities around the world occasionally restructure. <laughs> they always seem to be restructuring. And they date back to the 1980s. And that time, uh, this one that I visited last week, which is at the Beijing Foreign Studies University, was one of the first and remains one of the most active. And it arose out of a visit to Australia in the very early 80s by a scholar called Hu Wenzhong, who studied at the University of Sydney, gained his master's degree uh, in Australian literature, went back to China and uh, became the founding director of this centre. So they're very active. They publish, the, the whole group of them have an extraordinarily cordial and cooperative relationship, which is really an example to other sort of area studies groups in China. I think the Australianists are quite proud of the spirit and the cooperation that they share with each other. They publish a journal of Australian studies the publish was in English, but is now published in Chinese. So it has a much larger readership in China than it used to have. And uh, although it started with language and literature studies, it's now expanded to cover all sorts of aspects of historical and current social developments in, in Australia and regional issues and bilateral relations with China, of course. And who are the lecturers and how do students get to be part of it? Well, in the old days, people, you know, under the sort of planned socialism, people were just told, you know, we think you should specialise in this, that and the other. And it was very hard for them to get out of it. But these days it's a free choice. So people may go there because they want to study a particular topic or they're generally interested in China or just out of curiosity. And uh, generally speaking, they are graduate students. So mostly they will do a general study in, um, uh, well, the Foreign Studies University has you know, regular undergraduate departments where people would study um, majoring in English language studies or German or Japanese or whatever. And then they might go on to do a master's degree in Australian studies. So, for instance, some of the students that I spoke to, uh, one was, I'll just give you a couple of little stories because it might bring the whole thing to make it more alive. I was very struck by a, a young lady who came from Inner Mongolia on the border between Inner Mongolia and what we call Mongolia proper, who came from a, a, a rural family. And uh, she said she was very homesick and she wanted to go back to her home and she wanted to go back to live on the sheep farm where she'd grown up. So she's obviously a very bright girl and she'd gone to the local university in, in Mongolia and so Chinese was her second language she spoke Mongolian at home 
And then she learned English on top of that. And now she was um, writing a, a thesis about Australia. And of course, she was particularly interested in sort of environmental issues and agricultural issues. And there was another young lady who came from South China. She said she was the first, again, a very bright student, uh, first in her family to have gone on to university. And uh, so also had moved from the local university to Beijing Foreign Studies University. And she was writing her final honors year thesis, which was looking at Australia's refugee policy. Um, so the whole, the whole variety of, of different issues, and uh, and this, you know, the I think the, the student not necessarily planning to go like you know studying because they want to come to Australia. The ones I spoke to were quite committed to staying in China, and I asked them what their career prospects. There was one I spoke to who said that she wanted to go overseas to do further study, but she was actually planning to go to Germany, not to Australia. How many of those students do you believe actually end up doing a further degree here in Australia? I think a few will. They, they're very keen to talk to, to me and to the other people at the conference and to find out you know, who is working on which particular topic and um, and to I think getting access to materials in China is, is more difficult than, than here but here in Australia of course we don't have very many scholarships to offer and uh, humanities in Australian universities are not doing very well at the moment so we probably won't get as many students as we might have if, if universities here were better funded. Yes, that's a big issue, isn't it? The way that mm -hmm. universities all mm -hmm. over Australia are going. What did you find out about universities in China in the short time you were there this time? Oh, I think, well, they, they face the same issues that we do, as I say, the reorganisation. And uh, their government, like our government, you know, has priority areas for funding. China is very keen to um, get ahead in technology, and the, uh, you know, the the tech people, the engineering and the research science people, and they get more funding, <laughs> just as they do here. Well, before we go into the conference, Justin, how did you get involved? You have got a long association with the universities in China. When did that begin? Um, well, it began when I was a university student. Um, my university connections with China go back to even before the establishment of diplomatic relations because I was part of an education delegation from the University of Sydney that visited China in 1972 before the establishment of diplomatic relations. And uh, that was led by the late Professor Bill Connell, who was very interested in international education. And a book came out of that visit, which was called China at School. It was a look at the Chinese education system. And then later, I, when I went to China as cultural counselor, 
under our first ambassador to China. We had some contact with uh, universities. I w- there was a student exchange program and there was a, a lecturer exchange program. So I did visit a number of universities. And then I followed that up in the in the 80s when I came back from China and uh, the Australia-China Council, which is now replaced by the National Foundation for Australia-China Relations, was responsible in helping the establishment of some of those first Australian studies centers, provision of books and that kind of thing. A big change in China since those early days in 1970s? Uh, yes, yeah. As I said, you know, under Mao Zedong, everything was planned or everything was top down. Now there's a lot more freedom in the system. I know a few years ago there were a number of Australians who went to China to teach English. Is that still happening? Yeah. I'm not sure about teaching English. They've got pretty good teachers of language is at university. There may be some private schools that are employing foreign teachers, but there are a number of Australians who are attached to universities in, in China and teaching, for instance, there was someone at the at this conference that I went to who was um, teaching music composition. <laughs> it's a not particularly Australian, but, you know, he was he's in that area of... Um, ethnomusicology. Who organized the conference and who were those who attended? This conference is the ninth in a series that has been jointly organized by the Beijing Foreign Studies University and Western Sydney University. Uh, There was a break during COVID, but the 10th conference will be held at Western Sydney University next year. Those who attended will be, in the, when the conference is in China, of course, they're mostly people from various centers in China, and some of them will come to the conference next year, mostly funded by their universities with travel grants, because the conference itself doesn't have funds. It depends on the uh, hosting by the university. This conference was hosted by the Beijing University, and next year it will be hosted by the Australian University. And what was on the agenda in Beijing? Well, it covered a, a whole variety of subjects. Some of the papers were on language and literature, and some of them dealt with regional issues like Australia and China's cooperation in Antarctica, or you know, Australia's policies regarding New Guinea and, and uh, West Papua. And, and of course, I mentioned the music professor who gave a very interesting paper, I thought, about the, the influence of, of uh, Chinese music on, on Australian music. And your contribution? Uh, I presented a paper which is about the role of Chinese Australians in diplomacy in the Australian Diplomatic Service. It was a very wide-ranging number of topics. (laughs) Now, Albanese is going to be there by the time this is broadcast, I believe. What was the feeling about him coming? 
I can't tell you how happy people were to have us visiting. Um, you know, after COVID, when there were so many restrictions on travel. So that was a general feeling, you know, that things were getting back to normal. And with regard to Australia-China relations, the, the announcement of the dates of the Prime Minister's visit was taken as an extremely good sign. People were very, Chinese people were very optimistic that it meant that relations were going to improve. Do people talk about the close relationship between Australia and the US and the sort of rumblings of war, maybe? Yes, yes, they do. They're, they're, they're really, well, none of the people I spoke to regarded that as, uh, aspect as being a, a good sign. They were very worried. That, and they took the fact that that, that uh, the Prime Minister was visiting as a sign that, you know, we, <laughs> if, we, if the Prime Minister was going to visit China, it, it indicated to them that we were not likely to be engaging in, in war. I mentioned at the beginning, Jocelyn, that you said you had some apprehension before going. What was that apprehension? Uh, yes, well, I heard some stories about people who had had issues with the security organizations, not only in China, but also on the Australian side, that they were regarded as, you know, possibly being engaged in, let's say, not quite spying, but, you know, passing of information that was unauthorized. And uh, it wasn't at all clear what the limits are to, you know, what's allowed and what's not allowed between um, Australia and China. That's still an issue, I think. I don't know that we've really ironed out all the wrinkles there. I did rather, when I wrote a piece about it, I did slightly exaggerate my fears because I wanted to make a point. You know that uh, it was. You know when when things are uncertain, you don't and you don't know where the limits are. You might run into problems, or you might not. Actually, I didn't run into any problems, so I'm happy that that didn't come to pass. Your last visit was prior to COVID. I'm not quite sure which year. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was four years since I'd been there. Just before the outbreak of COVID, yeah. And changes, good and bad? Uh, well, everything's got a lot more sophisticated technologically. It's a bit of a problem for an old person like me. <laughs> Even in Australia, I find it hard to keep up with technology. And uh, China is more or less completely cashless these days, you know. So everything depends on you having a mobile phone and, and doing it on your phone and QR codes and this and that and the other. It's all a bit much for me. <laughs> Do people worry about climate change and is it obvious? Yeah, it was much warmer than I expected. And for you know, mid-autumn in, in Beijing, it's usually getting quite a bit chilly. <laughs> um, but the cold winters that I remember from, Ch from China in the old days seem to have gone. People told me that, you know, the... Ice doesn't freeze on the ponds and the canals that we're very used to. And uh, the water is, is drying up. I mean, Beijing has always had a shortage of water. 
So, yes, people are very worried about climate. You'd recommend people to visit China and learn more about the people and the culture and the politics? I think there's no substitute, really, for, for getting to know the people directly. And uh, it, it's, you know, travel in China is much easier than it was in, in the old days. High-speed railways and expressways and so on, you can get around the country and see a lot more than, than you used to be able to do so. And people are terribly welcoming and friendly. There is perhaps, a, you know, some people, I know last time I went there, my, I traveled with my son and he was a bit overwhelmed by the number of security cameras on, on the streets and, and in shops and, you know, everywhere. There seems to be, you know, there is a, a feeling that you're being monitored. But on local people take that as um, in their stride and they say that they feel a lot safer. So, for instance, I, I just heard a story about somebody who was at the conference who left her laptop in the taxi. Everything is so much monitored that, you know, the, the, the taxi driver obviously was going to return it because everybody would have known you know, the, the hotel where she was staying. They knew the number of the taxi because they'd called it for her. And, you know, it wouldn't necessarily happen in a, if you were traveling in, in another country where things quite, weren't quite so um, monitored. I don't know. You, you seem to be here in Australia. There's, there's, there's cameras everywhere now these days. And yeah. <laughs> we're getting a lot more than we used to. I don't think we've quite reached the level that China is, but and most countries are moving in that direction, I'm afraid. Any last comments, Jocelyn? I would just, you know, keeping my uh, fingers crossed, and I'm, like my Chinese colleagues, very hopeful that, uh, that Albanese's visit will keep the dialogue going and that things will better. Not quite back to normal. I don't think we can go back to where we were before. But there's a lot more benefit to be gained by closer exchanges, more exchanges with China than, than people give credit to. They tend to be been looking on the downside rather than on the upside. Nice to talk to you. Bye. And Professor Jocelyn Che, AM is an adjunct professor at the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology in Sydney. Rising Tide invites you to join the People's Blockade of the world's largest coal port from November 24 to 27 at Mullabimba, Newcastle. 1% of global emissions are from coal shipped through the port. We are in a climate crisis. It can't continue. Thousands of people will gather to demand no new coal and an end to coal exports by 2030 and alternative secure jobs for coal workers. Get on the water or chill out on the beach with live music and more. Register your interest at risingtide.org.au forward slash blockade and we'll get in touch with you. Rising Tide is a 3CR supporter. Change has to come. Change has to come. Change has to come. 
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. The atrocities being perpetrated on the people of Gaza as ambulances, hospitals and schools are attacked and destroyed fill us all with horror and anger. But if that's not enough to cause these reactions, the following interview with Dr Sue Wareham, President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, certainly will. Even as the moral abyss that is the war in Gaza has seemed as if it could not deepen, it now appears to be a bottomless pit. Sue, can you describe the contents of that letter signed by about 100 Israeli medical doctors? There were reports which we've been able to more or less verify that a a group of doctors in Israel um, have written to the effect that, to put it bluntly, hospitals are fair game in in warfare, and stating this the same as their government states that terrorists are uh, hiding out in the hospitals, and therefore it is legitimate to to bomb them. What was particularly worrying in the letter was the extreme dehumanising language that was used and uh, towards um, the resident, the civilian residents of Gaza, and uh, more or less blaming them for allowing hospitals to be used by Hamas, and uh, therefore more or less bringing this dire situation upon themselves. So, from the perspective of a fellow health professional, this was this was highly alarming. I think we need to recognise, though, that this was just from a group of presumably fairly extreme, extreme in their views, Israeli doctors, and would not reflect the views of a very large number of Israelis who are calling out for peace and calling out for a ceasefire the bombing of Gaza to stop. So I wouldn't want to portray this as uh, in any senses, uh, you know, look, look how terrible the Israelis are because of what their doctors are saying. This is not typical, but it is alarming to have this coming from people within the medical profession. But nevertheless, Sue, these doctors take an oath. And what does that oath say? Well, yes, the uh, the oath, the the modern version of the Hippocratic oath, is that one will do uh, every everything for the care of one's patient, and one might say, well, these people in Gaza aren't patients of Israeli doctors, but also the the oath points has in uh, words uh, around the concept of of common humanity and not paying uh, the need to disregard any notions of race, nationality, creed, religious beliefs or anything like that. Those are all irrelevant in the duty of medical professionals towards their work and uh, towards the people people whom they treat and towards towards those in need generally, that the sole criterion um, is people's need and the other identifying factors such as race, creed, etc., etc., are not relevant in how we regard people's need and right to be treated medically. And when you think how many doctors and medical personnel are actually in Gaza putting their lives on the line, not only those 
who live in Gaza, but doctors with Medicines Sans Frontières and others who have willingly gone there to help the people. Yes, that's true. It's uh, not just the doctors who are native to, to Gaza, Palestinians, although even if it were the same, same arguments would apply, of course, but w- what you say is absolutely correct, that there are people there from different corners of the globe. There's the uh, UN Relief and Works Agency, which is a major body in the, the occupied territories, providing health services, providing education, and providing a whole range of other social services as well. And they've lost staff. They've had staff killed in this bombing. Staff in, in a number of health facilities um, have been killed. Uh, and those who are left are clearly, and for obvious reason, in fear of losing their own lives. So the whole situation, one can only imagine how utterly terrifying it must be for those who are caught in it. Some of them committed to stay there because they're committed to look after those in need and some of them are there because they have no way of getting out. And how for those who have no understanding of the situation, the children, it must be nothing short of sheer terror for those children. And tragically, we can see this creating yet another generation of those filled with hatred because of what has been inflicted on them. So while the Israeli government seems to have a fanciful notion about, well, let's get rid of Hamas and then we've solved the problem. Well, no, no, they're just perpetuating the problem. And this is one of the tragedies of the current situation and one of the reasons that we urgently need a ceasefire. These 100 or so doctors from Israel, they must be held accountable, but by whom? Well, it would be um, very good to have have their comments utterly condemned by medical, medical bodies around the world and to make the point that this is not what our profession stands for. Our profession stands for protecting the vulnerable, protecting those in need, protecting those who who are having medical treatment, treating them according to need and not according to race or nationality. We need to keep making those points. And I think for most people in the in the profession, those points are pretty clear, understood, and part of why we do what we do as as medical professionals. So the comments need need to be called out. But I think also we don't want to focus too heavily on these comments because, as I mentioned, they do not reflect the views of a very large number of Israeli doctors and other Jewish doctors around the world who can clearly see that we need peace and we need a ceasefire now. Well, what's happening in Gaza, as with all wars, is a whole generation, particularly of children, who are being brought up traumatised. I mean, the children of Gaza and the people of Gaza have been traumatised for many, many years. But this is the ultimate trauma, isn't it, of what's happening now? Well, yes, it's far, far worse than anything that we've uh, observed previously. I mean, just the sheer scale of the destruction is is really quite difficult to contemplate and even uh, emergency workers 
who MSF and and other other people, other agencies, who work in disaster zones and war zones all the time. That's what they do. They're saying this is unprecedented. We've never seen anything like this, and this has just got to stop. A very large number of leading humanitarian organisations from around the world, including MSF, UNICEF. Amnesty International, a large number of others, I think there were about 18, which represents a huge number of um, not only emergency workers, but humanitarian and other people from around the world. I just say, stop, stop. There's got to be a ceasefire. This destruction has got to stop. And we haven't seen that level of insistence and desperation. Certainly, I can never remember a situation that has been so so loudly condemned condemned i mean words words almost fail when one tries to tries to think about or describe what what is happening in gaza yet our government doesn't seem to understand that well it's um the the words of understanding from our government seemed to trickle out at such a slow, slow pace. It was weeks ago that the Australian government refused to support a critical UN resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. It was a non-partisan resolution. It wasn't pointing the finger at any any particular party over and above others. It was just calling for a ceasefire for humanitarian reasons. And Australia could not even support that. And here we are weeks later. And finally, finally, our Foreign Minister Wong is starting to talk about the need for a a ceasefire. Well, yes, it's sort of welcome, but why couldn't if this is why couldn't this have happened weeks ago when there were attacks on hospitals and healthcare and civilian infrastructure at that time? As an Australian, it's been extremely difficult to to witness the uh, should we put it well, I think hypocrisy is probably the closest word with which with which the Australian government has absolutely and utterly condemned what Hamas did on October 7, and rightly so, but has failed since then to utterly condemn these attacks on healthcare, which have been grossly, absolutely disproportionate to what happened on October 7. And I don't believe that the Australian government has yet called anything that Israel has done since October 7 a crime. I could be wrong, but I don't believe that word crime, war crime, has been used in relation to anything that Israel has done since October 7. And this is just absolutely unacceptable. The law has got to be applied impartially. If it's not implied impartially, then then it's a joke. We're not upholding the law. And Australia, what Australia says and does in future will just be, will not have much value even if we do try to act as genuine peacemakers or peace brokers. Who could trust Australia when when the partisan nature of our decision making has been on such full display? Exactly. Thank you so much and thanks Sue for fitting me in. Thanks very much Jan, appreciate that. And we all greatly appreciate the work of Dr Sue Wareham 
and her colleagues at the, the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight, because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying, Free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty. We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. I spoke in recent days with Bevan Ramsden, representing IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network. The attempted genocide in Gaza. I don't think anyone can argue about about me using that word, when you realise what is happening in Gaza today. IPAN has issued a media release. Very similar to the United Nations resolution. I mean, the first and most important thing is calling for a ceasefire. That means both Hamas and the Israeli military stopping firing. A ceasefire is essential before you can do anything. Then you can talk about having a, a peace settlement or negotiations about the, how to get have security for the Palestinian people and for the people of Israel. Uh, how do you get security and peace in the region? That's the United, thing the United Nations could institute such a conference. But when there's a ceasefire, the first thing is that there'd be a safe corridor for bringing in food and medical supplies and all those things needed that they needed desperately. And there are hospitals there that haven't got the supplies to look after the the injured people. Um, There are people who haven't got enough to eat. The corridor must be a safe corridor provided for um, all the essentials to be brought into Gaza uh, for medical supplies, hospitals, and for people to eat and drink and and try and stay alive. So a ceasefire, the safe corridor, and then the possibility of talks to try and find a settlement, something which provides security for all parties concerned, but the ceasefire is the most important thing. Now, what I'm very, was so upset about, and I guess so many of us were, the United Nations made that call and the Australian government abstained from voting on the resolution. In short, they refused to support a ceasefire in Gaza and a safe corridor for food and drink and so on. Our government refused to support that absolute minimal requirement. If they have any sense of humanity, you'd want the war to stop, wouldn't you? And the vote to a ceasefire. But no, the Australian government abstained, didn't have the, the backbone, not the guts, cowardly position to, to sit on the fence and abstain. All I can think of is they don't want to offend the United States or Israel. I, I, t- I can't express my words about that. IPAN then initiated a a letter, a form letter, was sent to all our supporters asking them to, to use it to send that to their Member of Parliament and expressing their, their sorrow at what's happened and their disgust with the government failing to support the ceasefire. And I believe there has been a lot of letters sent in about that. Now, look, I want to speak about something else, probably shock you too, and shock our listeners. I read a document, Kelly Tranter obtained it, She's a human rights lawyer. This document is an 
Israeli intelligence document, and it discusses what they're going to do, what they want to do with the people of Gaza when they finish with the war. And they discuss three options. The option they prefer is to transport, to ship out, to displace all the population of Gaza to the Sinai. They'd have to send up tent cities and displace them to the Sinai and re-educate them. In brackets, after re-educate, is the word denazification. And they then said the explanation to the people of Gaza would be that Allah is punishing them for harbouring Hamas. Now, this is the document that I've read from the Israeli intelligence about their options in dealing with the people of Gaza when the war finishes. That will shock many people as it shocked me. They then discussed how they could get international support, these options, and so on and so forth. But um, it is an indication of their thinking. Talk about genocide. It's um, If they can't wipe them out as a people, they'll displace them and try and indoctrinate them and re-educate them in, in tents out on the Sinai. You said there were three options. What were the other two? The other two involved the Palestinian Authority being put in charge of Gaza, but they discounted both of them because they reckoned it wouldn't, it wouldn't alleviate the prospects of a further uprising occurring. And um, the only way of doing that was to get them out of Gaza, out on the Sinai and re-educate them. That was their, their option, see, their preferred option. And then I was discussing um, how they would get um, United States support and, and others. United States support is the crucial one, of course, for their, their options they were considering. The only reason the Arab countries don't rise up militarily is because you've got two aircraft carriers off the coast there full of planes carrying Tomahawk missiles and all the rest. And if any Arab country does start to, to get involved in supporting the Palestinians in this war against the Israelis, then they, they get the full force of the American uh, Navy and uh, aircraft. Um, so that's the intimidation there. Um, they can say words, they can say things, but they're intimidated from doing much. Not that we want to see a full-blown war blow, blow out in the, in the Middle East. The, the key thing is the restraint and sending the Israeli uh, troops and tanks back and getting a ceasefire and then trying to have, be constructive about the future. And that's pretty difficult while the Zionist regime is in power. I have heard from a couple of sources that there is, is, is a, a movement within Israel opposed to the, what the Zionists are doing, but that would have to get very strong to, to uh, really change the uh, course of events. To, I hope it would, be, would grow uh, within Israel, but uh, it would need to be pretty strong to overturn the current regime. And I've been speaking with Bevan Ramsden, and Bevan represents IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.